now that we've looked at, or maybe answered the question, at least hopefully in part, what is the Great Commission, which we have learned is multifaceted, what then is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? I'd like to begin just by looking at a Great Commission theology and its implications for us. And the first thing that I'd like to look at is the concept of love. And the reason we need to look at the concept of love is because of this. Not only is the Great Commission predicated on the person and work of Jesus, which we already talked about, right? But it is also to be understood through the lens of the Great Commandment. Because the Great Commission is not the Great Commandment, is it? If we say, what is, what is the Great Commandment? We know, don't we? It has to do with love. Let's just look at it. Matthew 22, 20, uh, 35 through 40. And one, and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. That is, he asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Here we go. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, which we take in at least theological terms, of combining these two ideas into what we call, quote, the great commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so love is the overriding concept and principle. Does that go away once the church receives its commission from the Lord? We neglect the love part. So are we then to, above all things, pursue love of the Lord? Certainly. Does that ever go away? No. And then also, are we to love our neighbor as ourself? So throughout this commission given to the church, we are to make sure and prioritize love. How does this work itself out? Now, this same commandment is, is given in Mark 12, 29, 31, 29 through 31, Luke 10, 27, John 13, 34, and 35, that's true, but I want to specifically look at the, the one in John because it has some implication for us. John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you see it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul talks a bit about this, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we do what with that? Does anyone know to fill in that blank? We persuade others. Is this true? Does love for God and others compel you to persuade others? What others? Which others? The unbelieving others or the believing others? Both. Both. given that Paul was writing to a church. And who is he attempting to persuade? The church. It has implication for both, however, because that's what he's also going to get to here in a moment. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but giving you cause to, or giving you cause to boast about us so that you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. Verse 13, for... If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Why? Because the love of Christ controls us. And we have com concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we get the context of the persuading, right? Specifically the context of the persuading, I would argue yes can have implications for the unbelieving, but specifically right here, Paul is saying, and so all have died. Have all died to sin? No, but believers have. And we're persuading them that the love of Christ controls them, it controls us, so no longer live for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and was raised. And this is the persuasion. Don't you realize that Christ died for you? And so you died. So stop living as if you didn't die. That's a weird thing to say. But that's what he's saying, right? Stop living for yourself and live for Christ. But can that same thing, although modified, be said to the unbeliever? Stop living as if you were your own. But live for the God who created you. In that sense, yes. But in this particular context, what is Paul saying? He's talking to the believer who is immature in his faith and he wants to persuade them because the love of Christ compels him to do so and it controls him. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded in Christ, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him less no longer. So he's saying, we regarded you according to the flesh and the flesh is equal with what? The fleshly part of you, the sinful part of you, and then we no longer regard you as such. But... You have died. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ, now we have a change. I told you he was going to talk about those outside the church in a second. This is where he's saying, listen, this is how far-reaching the impact of this is. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, so they are believers, just reiterating that, reconciled us to himself and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation, that is. Christ, uh, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. He entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, through what context is, does this come? making his appeal to believers that they should no longer live according to the flesh but according to Christ because you're a new creation. However, the message of reconciliation is not only for the believer, that is not only does the believer need the gospel, but who else needs the gospel? The unbeliever needs the gospel. Christ making his appeal through us. I believe I have only ever heard this entire passage from one angle and not from both collectively, but Paul is clearly speaking of both angles, both believer and unbeliever, because look at what it says. So we implore you, now who's the you? On behalf of Christ, be reconciled. He already said they're reconciled. He reconciled us to himself, done, completed, and now he says, so be reconciled to God. What? I don't understand. If you told us we're reconciled, then why are you telling us to be reconciled? This makes no sense. I think there are, that's why I say I think both concepts are here at work. That the message of reconciliation is for both the believing and the unbelieving. And we are ambassadors of that message, not only for the unbelieving. It would be imbalanced if we said this message of reconciliation is just for the lost. The message of reconciliation is for the believer too. How? Because you are continually to be immersed in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. This is what everything is built on. You need to be conformed to the image of Christ. You need to be a work in progress. Love compels us. Do you have a love, as Scripture says, as Jesus said there in John, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples. And what is that? If you have love for each other, who's the each other? Well, the disciples. This is how you'll know you're a disciple, if you have love for one another. That's a closed group. Now, should we love all people? Well, th yes, right? I'm not saying, well, so we only love each other and, and don't love anyone else. No, actually, I, I would suggest that the love of Christ should compel you to be an ambassador for Christ, not only to believers, but also to unbelievers. 
So love compels us. I, that's absolutely essential. And the Great Commission does not supersede, in a sense, the Great Commandment to love. But it flows out of that. Okay, next thing, perspective. We must maintain a proper perspective, both theologically and practically, because the Great Commission, I believe, can be summed up in two words. And it is the only imperative. Make disciples. And what is a disciple? We've talked about that. But how can you make disciples if you don't go? Right? I am a disciple, therefore. I am learning to observe all Jesus commanded, that is, internally, which includes obedience to the Great Commission externally. You are not only to be a disciple, but you are to be making disciples. Part of that making disciples is the baptizing and teaching. However, I don't know if anyone in this room has ever baptized someone, so you've not fulfilled the Great Commission. You've also not preached the gospel to everyone on the planet and all over the world, so you've not fulfilled the Great Commission. I'm saying that sarcastically. But it helps us to get our bearings. But you are to be a disciple, and you should be learning to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's internally, but also externally. You are making disciples, and what does that look like? There, you've got to see this as a two-tiered system. Making disciples both means uh, those who are converted to new disciple, right? That is, that is outreach. That is evangelism. That is missions. That is true. That is all correct. I know that we all know that concept. That's why we don't have to emphasize that so strongly. I believe that that part of it has been emphasized so extremely to the neglect of the importance of individual personal holiness also within the context of the local church. That has been de-emphasized. We know that we should be proclaiming Christ to the world. We are to be his witnesses. That is true. We have a heart for the lost, yes, but it is not our hearts for the lost that help people to know that we are disciples of Jesus. It is our heart for each other. That is biblical. That is not anti-biblical. That is biblical. Just read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Correct? So there is love, but there is a special love. So this includes both internal obedience and external obedience. Making disciples. So if we do one to the neglect of the other, we are not being balanced. That is, if we are just reaching out to the lost, but yet not discipling, making disciples of the believers we are imbalanced. We, we fall to this side. Now, if we're only doing this side and we're only m making disciples, people who are already believers, better believers in a sense, then we're, we're lopsided. Both are true. Do you understand what I'm saying? We ought to have both at practice, at work. That's going to lead me to our, my third concept here. I don't want to get ahead of myself. What we do as disciples of Jesus flows from who we are as disciples of Jesus. What we do flows out from who we are. What is the will of God for you? Go be a foreign missionary. That is the will of God for every believer. True or false? Go and do spontaneous personal evangelism always at the cost of anything. Incorrect. Scripture never says that. Now, is it okay and right? Both of these things are okay and right. It's, it's, it's the priority and emphasis that creates imbalance. Right? If you go and do spontaneous personal evangelism, and this is all you've done, have you fulfilled the Great Commission? No. If all you do is go and be a foreign missionary, have you fulfilled the Great Commission? If all you do is invest your life into other believers, have you fulfilled the Great Commission? No. So are we starting to see how this is a multifaceted thing that some people emphasize one end of it incorrectly, some people emphasize the other end of it incorrectly? 
This is why the third most important concept is balance. First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. says, finally then, brothers. Right, why don't you turn to that one? I'll give you a second. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. What is the will of God for you? At any given moment in your life as a believer, what is the will of God for you? I know the answer. The Bible knows the answer. Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord that you receive just as you ought to walk to please God just as you were doing, but do so more and more. Now, what's about to follow then? You know what instructions we gave you. So here we go. Here's how to walk and please the Lord. Are you ready? It doesn't include some of the things that we are told that it includes. This is the will of God for your life. Your sanctification. that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We all read that together as a church on Sunday. We are to be a disciple who is on mission for the Lord to make more disciples. That is true, but in that we need to maintain balance. And remember that being is important, and doing is also important. But if you're doing without the being, or you're being without the doing, then something is broken. Tunnel vision creates an imbalanced approach. The Great Commission, as we have seen, is about making disciples, and making disciples consists of going forth, proclaiming the gospel, true. But it also includes, and it gets more, and, and, and actually maintains the bulk of this commission, is to baptize and teach. Making disciples does not simply mean making converts. It does not say, go and convert people to Christ. Go and force someone or compel someone or get them to make a decision, I'll have to put that in quotes, for the Lord. That is not what the commission tells us to do, but to make disciples, and that is meaningful. That means something. So, Making disciples does not simply mean doing evangelism. Making disciples does not simply mean doing foreign missions. And we need to find balance between the who and the what. And that balance should be a balance reflected in the scriptures. Tunnel vision for personal evangelism or foreign missions is an imbalanced approach. How many of you, when you hear Great Commission, you think immediately, immediately you think of evangelism and foreign missions? I would have to argue, and this is what I said at the beginning, I think that is what we think of. Should we think of evangelism and foreign missions when we think of the Great Commission? Yes. But if it stops there, we are wrong. Does it make you think of the local church? I would argue that it does not in most cases, and this is the most imbalanced issue within this concept. Where is the local church in this? It doesn't exist. If we stop at personal evangelism and foreign missions, the local church is non-existent. Actually, it's not even necessary. Likewise, tunnel vision for personal holiness can be an imbalanced approach. Would you agree? However, I would have to qualify that because if your approach is personal holiness, it should then be that your holiness compels you to the Great Commission. Otherwise, you're not actually becoming holy. Right? 
So if you are set on personal holiness and maturity, what is that going to lead you down the path of? The Great Commission. Do you understand? However, we should do everything we can to avoid tunnel vision. Do you agree? I want to quote Burke Parsons here. He's a He's part of Ligonier. Kind of took one of the seats underneath R.C. Sproul. He says this. Simply put, if we have only evangelized a people or a nation, we have not been obedient to the fullness of the Great Commission. Moreover, if we have only evangelized, baptized, and received a person into church membership, we have not been obedient to the fullness of the Great Commission. Right! That is exactly right. Unfortunately, there's an imbalance here and we've been tipped over to one side or tipped over to the other and we need to find an appropriate balance between the two because the scriptures are balanced in this, right? Balance is important. So we might ask at this point, what does a Great Commission church look like then? Where the rubber meets the road, we might say. I'm going to begin by asking some questions as I did at the beginning, okay? Is the mission of Jesus the mission of the church? And the answer to that is, can't be. There's only one like him. That's what monogenes means, the one and only unique son of God. And that's not you. Is the mission of God the mission of the church? To send your only son into the world. I guess not. Is the mission of the church to enact social change? Is that our mission? Enact social change, and if you've done that, you've done what God asked you to do. Is the mission of the church to see divine justice carried out in the public and private sectors? And if you've sought that out, then you've fulfilled the Great Commission. Is the mission of the church to implement mercy ministries and humanitarian aid? And if you've done that, you've fulfilled the Great Commission. Is the mission of the church something that can be accomplished at all? Does the mission of the church concern the people out there or the people in here? That's right. Both. Both. To neglect one for the sake of the other is imbalanced. In Mark Dever's words, we need to understand the role of the church in all of this, and we need to look at what the apostles did and taught after receiving the commission. Ah, that's good. So they received this commission from Jesus. Now, what do you think they went, a- went ahead and did and taught? Probably what was clear to them from the commission. So we don't see the apostles teaching and doing things that are contrary to the commission Jesus gave them. What we see the apostles doing and teaching is right perfectly in line with what the commission was and how they understood it to be implemented in this world. Would you agree or disagree? Unless the apostles got it really wrong. Man, what you guys did and what you taught after Jesus gave that commission, you just, you failed. We get it though. So let's do away with everything the apostles did and taught, and we'll come up with our own version of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission and the mission of the church. Wrong. We believe the apostles got it right. So then let's look at what they did and what they taught. Won't that help us? Now remember, you are not apostles. Neither am I. So how this begins to be implemented from the apostolic age and the apostles looks different post-apostolic age. Does that make sense what I just said? Okay. Number one, the church is God's great commission plan. Probably, actually, if maybe we could summarize this entire idea of today, that's it. So maybe star that little little idea there. I hope to unpack that for you because if I were to say that at the beginning of this conference that the church is God's great commission plan, that that might 
maybe not have made sense. But I am arguing that the church, because I believe the scriptures are saying the church is God's great commission plan. What do we mean? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, what happens there? The church is born. The church is never reborn. Okay? The church is born at one time in history, and that's a unique time in history that never happens again. There is not a new Pentecost. There is only one Pentecost. There is only one initial outpouring of the Spirit where the church emerges. And it only happened one. It's a unique moment in time, right? However much the people of Azusa Street want to differ, okay? So there is a single moment in time where the church emerges, and where does it go forth from? Jerusalem. To where? Everywhere. And it's beautiful, Acts 2, verses 40 through 47, I'd like to read it. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, and who is this? Who's the he? That's Peter. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. By the way, who is there listening to his sermon? Jews. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves. Here we go, Acts 2, 42. Here's what the first Christians did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Stop right there. Why? Because that's what disciples do. They learn to observe all Jesus commanded. And the apostles knew this, and they took it seriously. And so what did they do? They taught the disciples, right? They knew that's what they should do. But what else did they devote themselves to? to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Oh, there was a little community that emerged. What is this little, what is this community of people? And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through all people who believed, through the apostles. And all who believed, listen, here's that community, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What else did this community do? Day by day they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what they did. The gospel was preached to them by an apostle. They heard the words of the gospel. They believed this word, and guess what? Disciples are made. The disciples are then baptized. The disciples devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The disciples form a community of unity, commitment, and commonality. And guess what happens from that point on? the Lord adds to their number. What happens next as the story goes on? What is the story of Acts? What do they do and what did Luke emphasize is happening all throughout the book of Acts? What is the main issue? What is the main thing that happens? What is the goal in the mind of as it, as it changes over to Paul and Paul kind of takes center stage? As, a, as an apostle, what does, how does he understand the commission of Jesus? What did he do? He went and he started churches. That's what he did. He planted churches. How? Just randomly, however they wanted to gather themselves, however they wanted to operate, whatever they wanted to teach was fine. Just as long as you guys are together in your cute little community, you know, do whatever you want to do. No, wrong. Paul planted churches with an appropriate structure. A structure, I will argue, in which the Great Commission can be fulfilled. Because what is the Great Commission all about? Making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them, and what is the context in which that occurs? Where are people baptized and taught in community? In the church. 
Mark Dever says, church planting is the normal means by which and result of, uh, let me say, he doesn't say by which, I, I, I said that and I shouldn't have. I have my next thought on the brain. Mark Dever says, church planting is the normal means of and result of obeying the Great Commission. I'll say that again since I messed it up. Church planting is the normal means of and result of obeying the Great Commission. Because the apostles didn't mess up when they saw this as the opportunity to plant churches. Churches, individual communities come into existence. That's what we see happen. The Great Commission cannot be fulfilled outside the God-ordained context of the local church. This is the environment in which God has created to make disciples. That is not to neglect the reality, just as Paul was a missionary for the Lord. That is true, and some may be called to do that. This does not neglect the reality that the lost need to come to know Christ. That is true, and we ought to be doing that and living that as witnesses to this world. Absolutely, yes. And we should put effort into that. It's not to diminish these things. It's to elevate something that has been diminished. What has been diminished? I believe, well, I'm getting excited. I believe the local church has been brought to nothing and the individual Christian experience has been elevated. That's what I think. And when we have a community where we prize and elevate the local church so much, it's offensive to people, and they don't get it. The church is God's great commission plan. He has organized the church in a particular way so as to make this commission possible. Because we are not all the same, and we do not all have the same function. We don't all have the same job. So when someone is baptized at FRC, are you helping fulfill that commission as being here, as being witnesses to that, and then coming alongside that person and growing them, teaching them to observe all Christ commanded? That is the great commission. That is what we are to be doing. In addition to the going. You understand? So when someone is baptized here, it doesn't mean, I'm, I'm saying, if you, if you, you have to interpret this one of two ways. Either you must be baptizing people, otherwise you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, or that someone needs to be baptized in a context where you belong. Otherwise, you're just not doing it. You can't. Disciples need to be baptized. Additionally, if you are not in a context where these disciples are then being taught or you are not doing it personally, then you're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Additionally, if we are sitting and focusing only on personal holiness and the growth of our local church, we are imbalanced in our approach to the Great Commission. Okay? This is the context in which the disciples are baptized and taught in the biblically structured local church. Otherwise, why do we need structure in the local church? What is the local church even for if all we need are individuals who are converted who then go and convert other individuals? The local church is not necessary. We don't need the local church. I learn all I need to know from the Bible, and then I go and I evangelize people, and they get converted, and then I just keep going and converting people. And the local church is meaningless. It means nothing in that context. But because what we see happen is church planting, then it naturally follows logically that how they understood the Great Commission to be fulfilled is in church planting. That's what it means. Local churches are the means by which God is intended to fulfill the Great Commission. I put in my notes, what did I just say and what did I not say? I did not say that no one can become a believer outside the context of the local church. I didn't say that. Why does the church exist as a corporate entity rather than a separated, disconnected set of redeemed individuals? Is there something that the church does corporately that individual believers should not and cannot do? I'll, I'll ask that again. 
Is there something that the church does corporately that individual believers should not and cannot do? Oh, and is it part of obeying and observing all that Jesus commanded? Unless the apostles got that teaching wrong as well? We're going to tell you to do this. I mean, Jesus didn't say to do it. But we're going to tell you to do this because, I don't know, we just came up with it. It sounds, sounds all right. Or did they actually teach accurately these things? This is where we need a reorientation of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not simply about personal evangelism and converts, personal mission. It is not simply about personal mission. R.C. Sproul. The Great Commission calls us to flood this world with knowledgeable, articulate Christians who worship God and follow Jesus passionately. The Great Commission calls us to flood this world with knowledgeable, articulate Christians who worship God and follow Jesus Christ passionately. So there is one aspect of the going, but the Great Commission does not end there, does it? Jonathan Lehman again. He says, The church, as organized collective, possesses an authority that the individual Christian does not possess. Take away that distinct authority and mission, and at best the local church becomes optional. If submission to the local church is a good but not necessary thing, then we also have to say that the existence of the local church itself is good and not necessary. It's good, I mean, but it's not necessary. Or is it necessary? And why is it necessary? Because the church is God's great commission plan. The great commission is not an, on an individual basis, but on a corporate basis. The great commission is not fulfilled on an individual basis, but on a corporate basis. How do we know that? The preaching of the word, the submission to leadership, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, bearing one another's burdens, and so, so forth. This, these are collective ideas that we do together and happen within the context of the God-ordained means of the structure of the church. There are things that if you were an individual Christian out somewhere in the world that you could not participate in observing all Jesus commanded his church to do if you were a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't. You can't. And if you can't do all of this, then that means that you must do it within a context. What context must you do it in? In a biblical church. So there, is two, there are two ways that we understand the church. The church, one, is organized collective. This. Also, the church as its individual members. Right? Two different ways. You are the church as individuals but we are the church as a collective entity as well. Jonathan Lehman. Like embassies, churches possess the authority not to make someone a citizen, but to affirm a person's citizenship through the ordinances, as if handing out passports. Through the ordinances and the preaching of the gospel, the church, these people of Christ's kingdom become visible on planet Earth. Then R.C. Sproul. It is every Christian's duty to make sure the task of evangelism is done. Are all teachers? No. But it is your responsibility to be a member of a body of Christ to make sure that teaching is being done. Is everyone a missionary? No. But it is your responsibility to make sure that the missionary enterprise is carried out. So, we all have a part in the responsibility of the whole mission of the church. There we go. We're going down a path here, aren't we? So, we all have a part in the responsibility of the whole mission of the church. You are important. You are important to this church fulfilling our mission. And what is that mission? The next thing we see happen, not only are church plant, church, the church is born, right? And then churches are planted. But then the next thing we see happen is churches are strengthened. And a question maybe becomes, why do we need healthy churches? Because the local church is the context in which the Great Commission is fulfilled. 
Otherwise, why would planting and strengthening a churches be the focus, knowing that Jesus gave the Great Commission? Why are you focusing on churches so much? Go and do the Great Commission already. Oh, well, maybe the church is God's Great Commission plan. Maybe we got it right. Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 2 says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers. Why? Because that's the job of a disciple, is to make other disciples. And how do you disciple someone? By being part of the teaching of them. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, and he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. Why does God want mature believers? How does God intend for, de- for believers to advance in their maturity? I'm going to ask both of those questions again. Why does God want mature believers if we already have our salvation solidified already? How does God intend for believers to advance in their maturity? Has he set up a plan for that? Does he, does he have something organized that they might grow into maturity? And why does he want them mature? Is a, is a clear picture emerging? Oh, I hope so. If the whole point is getting people saved, spiritual maturity is meaningless. And so is the church. However, if God intends that the mission of the church includes the maturation of the believer, then the church will see this as a priority. In other words, as we give ourselves to the mutual task of discipleship, we are fulfilling the Great Commission. The collective and diverse body of the local church is the natural means by which the Lord gave to grow his church. The collective and diverse body of the local church is the natural means by which the Lord gives to grow his church. Are all teachers? No, sorry, can't fulfill the Great Commission. Do all baptize? No, sorry, can't fulfill the Great Commission. Are all evangelists? By the way, like Philip, who was called the evangelist. It is a title. It is also a gift, a role given to the church, okay? Not all are evangelists. Not all are missionaries. Does it mean you are not on mission? Does it mean you don't ever evangelize people? No, that's not what it means. You're not a teacher, okay? So you don't teach anyone? Wrong. You just don't have the role of teacher, right? If this is true, that all Jesus wanted the church to do was to get people saved or evangelize them, then the world would, or then the Lord, excuse me, would have gifted us all with the same gift. And what would that gift be? A gift that converts people. But that's not what we see happen. Why did the Lord gift his church? And uniquely gift them in a well-rounded fashion that is like a body and each part doing its functions actually does something. If all it was about was getting converts, then we would all have the same gift, and that gift would make converts. However, that is not what we have from the Lord. Ephesians 4, look at it with me. I hope my logic flowed there for you, and you see what I'm saying. As you're turning there, Ephesians 4.10, let me just re-emphasize at this point. It is good for us to evangelize the lost, and we should be doing that. It is good for us to make the gospel known among the nations, and we should be doing that. However, if that's all we think we're supposed to do, and we do it to the neglect of love, or we do it to the neglect of discipling and teaching and growing in maturity in the context of the local church and lifting the local church high, We've got it wrong. 
because the way the apostles understood the Great Commission being fulfilled is through church planting. Ephesians 4, 10 through 16. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, he gave. The Lord gave his church, what? Prophets, evangelists. Oh, excuse me, I forgot the apostles. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Okay, pause. Those are some of the things that the Lord has given to his church. Why? Why didn't he just give all evangelists? He gave evangelist upon evangelist upon evangelist. That's not what he gave. Did he give some evangelists to his church? Yes. But he also gave shepherds and teachers. And then he also gave a prophets, or a, a, a prophets. He also gave apostles and prophets. Is he still giving apostles today? It just, it keeps coming up. Verse 12, to do what? To do what? What is their function? What are they to do? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and mature manhood. Maturity in Christ. Why do we need mature believers? Because the church needs to be mature. Why? Because the church is God's great commission plan. We need to press on to maturity. Now, if we are truly pressing on to maturity, other things are flowing out from us. If we are truly teaching what the word has to say, other things are flowing out from us. It is not to diminish those things. I will say on repeat, it is to elevate the things that I believe are very much missing in the local church context. Why do all these offices exist in the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Oh, so we're all to be doing things? Oh, man, I thought we hired ministers. Like, you do the work of ministry. Wrong. Now, are there people who have particular roles, and as they fulfill their role, you are then to fulfill your role. And as we all are fulfilling our roles, the church is doing what it should. But we can get imbalanced, can't we? Verse 14. Why? What's the point of all this? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, there's love, we are to grow up in him, that is, observing everything he taught, because we are disciples, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together in every joint with which it's equipped. And each part is working properly. It builds up the body and it grows. It builds itself up in love. This is how the church is to function. And it's supposed to be a well-rounded body that functions, each part doing its own part, carrying its own load, because we are not all equally the same. Romans 12, 4 through 5. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body we all have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Does your body have many body parts? Do all your body parts have the same function? What a lopsided body that would be. So is to be the church. We are not all the same. And unless we believe that the Lord Jesus himself really messed it up when he gifted his church. We are not all the same. But we are all on mission together. Everyone doing their own part. Everyone doing their own part. The church is on mission together. A mission to do what? Right. A mission to fulfill the Great Commission. The mission of the church is the Great Commission. 
What are we collectively rallying around? What are we doing? Why are we here? Do you see discipleship, teaching, training, personal holiness as part of the Great Commission? I have to argue that possibly for some before this time you didn't see that as part of the Great Commission because the Great Commission, after all, is only about foreign missions and evangelism. But that's incorrect. The Great Commission is also about maturity in Christ and the church functioning, each part doing, carrying its own load as we all together corporately fulfill the Great Commission task. As an individual, you are an uh, individual believer, you are part of Christ's church. You did not become a believer because someone evangelized you. I will say again, you did not become a believer because someone evangelized you. You became a believer because the Lord God himself called you to himself and regenerated you by his own power. However, it may be the case that the Lord used someone to bring that message to your ears and how wonderful it would be, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As part of Christ's church, you are to be discipled. That is, you are to be baptized and taught within the God-ordained context of the local church. You are to be baptized and discipled constantly. Is discipleship important? Yes. If we neglect it, what are we neglecting? The Great Commission. There is a necessity laid upon any who call themselves a believer to be part of a biblical local church, and do you see why? As part of the local church, you are to fulfill your specific role, and there are some ordinary tasks, such as partaking of the ordinances, accountability, love for one another, teaching, witnessing, serving, defending, submitting, supporting, giving, helping. Do you see it? You have a role to play. And for this, for us, it, that's a, these roles are common to all of us. That's a common experience. So if you say, well, the Lord didn't, which is a gift given, called me to service, for example, or the gift of helping, right? So I don't have to help. I'm sorry, I'm just not gifted in serving and helping, so I'm going to kick it back here. But there is a sense in which we are all called to do certain things, but there are those among us who are gifted to take that thing that we are all called to do to an extreme level, such as the evangelist, such as the teacher. Are we all called to teach? Yes, in our own way, the church. But are there some gifted by the Lord to teach? Yes. So apply that concept, okay? So there are ordinary tasks that are common to all believers, yes, but there is also diverse gifting, that is preaching, teaching, serving, contributing, leadership. Contributing, that's an interesting one. Some are gifted with contribution. I, sorry, I just don't have the gift of contribution, sorry. That's, that's crazy to think, isn't it? But is it a gift given to some? Yes. Does it mean that just because you're not given a gift means you, have, you can neglect it? No. I think there's some issues regarding that as well that's never been misunderstood. There are also specific roles or offices that the Lord gifts to his church that all do not participate in. So there are elders, there are deacons, there are evangelists, missionaries, apologists, and so forth, right? I'm going to include those in there because that is the missionary or evangelistic endeavor, right? There are some who are very gifted apologists. There are some who are very gifted missionaries. There are some who are very gifted evangelists. There are some who are very gifted teachers. We don't all have the same function, right? But we are a body, and God arranged it on purpose. He didn't mess up. And when churches were planted by the apostles to fulfill the Great Commission, they didn't mess up because the church is God's Great Commission plan. Additionally, I will say, 
3 John 5 through 8. Write that one down. That's an important reference. 3 John 5 through 8. We are doing nearly excellent on time, by the way. 3 John 5 through 8, it says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. I want you to, this is important, I want you to hear what's about to be said. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Although you are not the ones going, you are supporting those who go, and as you support those who go, you are fellow workers with them in the truth. Very important concept. Our support of others includes us in their work. Everyone doing their role. I will say there is an incubation period, best concept I can come up, for with this. It's an incubation period for the new believer and for the new church, right? The church in Corinth, for example, they were infants in their faith, and they didn't have elders yet. Have you noticed that as we've been studying through 1 Corinthians? They didn't have elders. And you might say, church without elders, I'm not going to that church, unbiblical church. Well, calm down. They're in their incubation period, and their trajectory matters. I would argue that of FRC as well. We are not a perfect church. Just in case that's news to anybody. However, I believe with all my heart and my mind that we are on a faithful biblical trajectory and we are working as we can to better conform ourselves collectively and as individuals to be fulfilling the commission the Lord has called us to. We know that a plurality of elders is biblical, and yet they didn't have it yet, right? Acts 14 tells us that. Titus 1.5 tells us that. There's a commitment on the part of the church and the individual believer to press on to maturity, and that matters. Pressing on to maturity means we are learning to observe all that Jesus commanded us. If you are learning to observe all Jesus commanded, then you will be giving yourself to the task of making disciples. If you are learning to observe all that Jesus commanded, then you will be giving of yourself to making disciples. I'm going to end this session with three quotes from Paul Washer. Okay? I think he has said some of these things in a way that are, I can't say them any better. He has his own perspective and way of saying things. I think they're powerful. I want you to hear what's being said. Okay? First quote, you are either called to go down into the well or to hold the rope for those who go down, but either way, your hands are going to be scarred. You are not going to be an obedient Christian without scarred hands. You understand what he's saying? This is exactly what we've been saying, but through an illustration. Some go down into the well. But if you are not holding the rope for them or doing something to support them, even if you're not the one going, you ought to be involved in the work. So either way, you're going to have scarred hands, whether you're the one going down the rope or the one holding the rope. Next quote. The Great Commission is not limited to the making of individual disciples, but it involves bringing each believer into an, inter an interdependent relationship with others in the context of the local church. Probably most who read this article will be highly influenced by the individualism of Western culture. Yes, I 100% agree with that statement. We have become so individualized. We think this is about me doing what Jesus commanded outside of the context of the local church, and that's incorrect. Therefore, we must be careful to note that although Christianity appreciates and seeks to uphold the uniqueness of individual believers, it is a religion of community. The missionary is not merely called to make disciples, but to make fellowships. 
of disciples who love and serve one another according to the standard of Scripture. That was the missionary enterprise, after all. They didn't go seeking to make individualized, separated converts, but they sought to place those converts within the context of biblical community, what we call the local church. Last quote. Obviously, not all Christians are called or required to go to the mission field as a full-time missionary. Some are called to stay. I, I believe the impression is some are special. And if you are so special that God might even call you to be a missionary because that's, that's the highest good of Christianity. However, we need to normalize because some are called to stay and some are called to go and none of us is better than another. We all are part of the body doing our own function. But if they go, we should hold the rope for them. Right? At the great risk of oversimplification, the Great Commission can be divided into two separate tasks. This is still Paul Washer. Every believer is called to go down into the mine or to hold the rope for those who have gone down. A believer should either go into the mission field or stay at home and support those who have gone. However, regardless of calling, every believer must demonstrate equal devotion to the Great Commission and be willing to suffer the same loss. Yes, 